So if you turn there in your Bibles, if you have one, or if you have an app, uh, we're going to go through part of the Bible this morning. We're in the book of James. And uh, I don't know about the professional thing, but yeah, we got some words about uh, finances today. Uh, It seemed that it was interesting when we met as elders and Dave said, I need to do an update and can I do it in the next couple of weeks? I said, well, we've got a passage that's talking about finances. Why don't we do it then? Um, if you're new to Urban Grace, we don't preach on this text every week and every time there are finances. And actually we have a habit of going through books of the Bible and it's a good thing too because I would have skipped this. Uh, if I had kind of the choice, because it's not an easy word. It's not a Merry Christmas theme, and I'll show you that by reading it out loud here. Uh, For those of you who are heading into Christmas shopping, this is a wonderful way to send you off into the mall. Um, If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and one of our uh, ushers would love to bring you a Bible. And for the rest of us, let me read it. It's in James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. It's near the very end of your Bible, if you're unaware. So here we go. Seatbelts on, please. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. I came, I was leaving the house this morning, And uh, Les was still reading her Bible. And she looked at me and she said, I read your text this morning. Whew. (laughs) Let's pray. Because I don't believe that our ears will be open to this unless God opens them. So Jesus, we know this is a tough word. And yet we know there will be a tendency in us to distance ourselves from the text. So would you open and soften our hearts today that we may hear what you have to say through what James had to say to his friends. Jesus, may we not hear condemnation today, but conviction. And may we not hear what we need to do better, but may we hear how you are better. May we hear good news today and not bad. Jesus, Only your spirit can pull this off. And so we're just trusting that he will work mightily amongst us and that we will hear these words with a soft heart. And we ask for this, Jesus, because you told us to, because you offered this to us, and because we believe that it's your name that must be magnified in this situation. Amen. So today, we're talking about money, and we're talking about wealth. Uh, You can't always assume that these are the same things, because sometimes when you talk about money, and yet you have kind of this collection of stuff 
uh, we, we tend to maybe even separate those things out. But, but what we're talking about is this idea of money wealth. The Bible often uses the word mammon, mammon to, to talk about this. The one word to describe both of these things. Which would include things like investments, real estate, uh, salary, uh, futures, all of these sorts of things. There's very few of us that have never dreamed about having a lot of money. It's a very common theme. When I worked as a framer in Cochrane in 2005-2006, one of our favorite times of uh, when we, when we do, did our coffee break would always be, what would, if you won the lottery, what would you do with it? That's what we, it was a way to pass the time. Right, when I was growing up, this dates me a little bit, but there was a song by one of my favorite bands says, if I had a million dollars. And it was kind of like a, a cynical, sarcastic version. But then a million dollars actually meant something. Now many of us will make, over the course of our lifetime, in total, more than a million dollars. I know it's hard to imagine that we do that, but, but many of us will. Some of us have already hit that. Some of us will hit that very quickly. There's very few of us that have not dreamed about making more, having more. And so I think it's, it's interesting that we have that, this idea of making more, wanting more, and yet when we read some kind of this text, when it says, come now you rich, weep and howl, we separate ourselves from this. Very few people walk up to me and go, I'm really rich and I'd like to do something with my money. It's rare that I meet that. Some will admit their wealth, but many of us won't. We have a hard time understanding that we're wealthy. We, we talk about poor university students. Even though their education is paid for, they have a place to live, they have food to eat, and someone else pays for it all. They're quite wealthy, actually, in comparison to the world. And I repeat this every time we talk about wealth. If you have a place to live, food in the fridge, a real job, shelter over your, over your head, you're in the top at least 10% in the entire world. It's an amazing thing. Top 10 wealthiest, top 10% wealthiest people in the world. It's very easy for us to say rich is someone else. It's very difficult for us to say I am wealthy. Even some of the homeless people in our neighborhoods have more because they don't have consolidated debt. And they would be considered wealthy because they have some opportunities that many people in the world do not. But the problem is never wealth. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible doesn't actually condemn wealth, but it regularly condemns how you deal with wealth. It does not go after rich without going after the motive behind being rich. And so this morning, what I'm hoping that you do is not simply try to distance yourself from the text. And this isn't one of those, yeah, get them, pastor, moments. What I want us to do is just humbly sit at the feet of God's word and just say, where is this in my life? And, and really, as James will get into it, it's just about greed. This is about wanting more, and this is about that more never being satisfied. And it's a really weird text 
because if, if you're brand new to the book of James or even new to Christianity, um, these kind of texts are not isolated outside of their context. And so it's a very real context that's going on in the book of James. And it's a context inside of our series. Our series is called Prove It, which is, sim- we've called that simply because it seems like in the book of James, consistently what this, that what this writer does is he basically says, you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and in control of everything in the world? Prove it through your actions. He's not saying prove it to God. He's saying prove it to yourself. Let's see, much like you would prove something. Like, like you, would make, you would say, this is a rubber meets the road type of book. You say you believe this. How does it show up in your actions? And so what's, what's happening here is, is James is going through a lot of different areas in life. And so he begins by saying, come now you rich, weep and howl. If you look to verse Chapter 4, verse 13, you see that he, said, he had said this recently. Come now, you who say. So it's come now, you rich, weep and howl. This is the way they would talk. They would simply say, like, listen up. The hip-hop version would be yo-yo. Hear ye, hear ye. Pay attention to this. You rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And what we have in this text is we don't have any good news. I don't know if you noticed that. There's nothing positive. There's no wrap up. There's no, you know, fade to black. There's nothing. There's just kind of like a dead end. You know, he does not resist you. And then, oh, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And it kind of jumps into next week's text. And so if, we, if we're observant, we, we begin to see that there are basically two problems here. And I'm going to include verse 7 because I think this is a hinge verse. Ben's going to be talking about this next week as well because it's connected to his text. But in verse 7 there, the be patient therefore brothers is actually the good news. It's the hinge point between these two as a result of what we read in verse 6. And so it it's an unusual text because sometimes you're able to just go through a text and, and talk through it and say, well, here's the bad part of the text and then here's the good part, but there's nothing good in here. But we don't, are not concerned merely with preaching the word of God. We want to preach the gospel from the word of God. And so we want to give you the good news that Jesus is so much better. And so there's two issues. The problem, that's verses one through six, the bulk of this morning. And then there's the solution which is be patient. And so the problem, verses five to six, the problem. What's the problem? Well, he's very descriptive. If you know anything about James, you know, uh, if you've been reading through it all with James, you'll see a lot of word pictures. You'll see a lot of images there that, that leap off the page for James. And they're very helpful for that. All the way through, he has these great word pictures you know, when it comes to using words, he talks about a, a bit in a horse's mouth, how that's what's what words are like. And he has these great images. And, and so the setting of James is basically a bunch of ex-Jewish people. So people who have grown up with Jewish culture, Jewish teaching their whole lives. Who have then realized that the Messiah that was prophesied throughout the Jewish scriptures is actually Jesus Christ who was Jewish, and he's the Messiah that they were waiting for. There was great disagreement on this. Some would say, no, Jesus was not the Jewish Messiah, and then some would say, yes, he was. That's what separates a Jew and a Christian, actually. 
And so they have a lot of this Jewish imagery. They have a lot of this Jewish language. And actually, this language would be very familiar to you if you were Jewish. It's throughout the Old Testament. There's always this condemnation that, that when people are absurdly wealthy and they're lavish in their lifestyle and they're not paying attention to the poor, that, that the prophets have always said, that's not what money was for. Because throughout the Old Testament scriptures, money is something given as, and Dave used this word this morning, to steward. So the way God took care of poor people was he gave money or wealth to people and then he said to Israel, the Jewish people, distribute it and take care of the poor people. That's how he decided to take care of the poor. There was no government system. There was, there was the church, the, the, the people who followed God. And so these Christians have been scattered through persecution. People who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah basically persecuted them and they showed up in various towns and they had economic pressure come upon them. And so there were people in this town and we find out that in this particular instance, they're wealthy landowners. This regularly happens. If you look at uh, James chapter one, you see uh, this kind of, this context that there are, there, there's oppression that's happening. People being taken advantage of on a regular basis. People that are making money off of other people's backs. I know that never happens today, does it? No one gets wealthy off of someone else's poverty. And so they're, they're discouraged. They're discouraged people. Hey, we believe that God is sovereign over everything and yet we're being taken advantage of. And it's happening right under our noses and there's nothing we can do to fight for ourselves. We can't take these people to court. We can't afford to do that. There is no system that helps with that. And so they're discouraged. And so James has a word for them to remind his believing friends of what God thinks about misuse of wealth. And that's our context. And so what are they doing? Well, there's four basic things that we see in the text. They hoard wealth. You have laid up treasure in the last days. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of imagery that I can't totally get into and describe uh, in full, but they're hoarders. I don't know, anyone see the show Hoarders? Anyone watch the show Hoarders, if you can stomach it? It's hard to stomach at times, isn't it? Right? Hoarders. These people are hoarding wealth. What is hoarding? It's having stuff that you can't use anymore. Right? You're collecting stuff, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Like having a house, this is not a bad thing. Having food is not a bad thing. But when you have too much food, what happens to it? It rots. That's what hoarders do. They have more than they can actually use. But instead of giving it away or not buying it, they're so addicted to having so much stuff that they just, it's, it becomes an a disease, an addiction, so to speak. Now, when we watch hoarders and we see stuff, sometimes it, to us it may look disgusting, but what's happening is when you hoard wealth, it's very clean and neat and tidy and, and easy to not look like you're hoarding it. But this description of having more money than you actually need hits us pretty hard. 
Because that's actually some of our goals for life. Having more than I actually need. It's very real for us. So he says, these people are hoarding their wealth. What else are they doing? They're committing fraud against their employees. So there were, there was, in some ways, there were limited ways to make money and wealth in these days. But sometimes when you got into debt, what you had to do is you had to sell yourself into slavery to pay out your debt. I know it sounds totally different than the way Visa goes after us today, right? Right? It's essentially garnishing wages, right? They just go, out, they go after people. So you can't, you can't pay your bills, then you sell yourself as a slave owner, or you hire yourself out. So they've done that. They've hired themselves out. But here's what's happened, is the landowners have taken the work of these people trying to pay off their debt, and they've said, we'll pay you later, or we'll pay you when we feel like, and they live off of that money. It's fraud. It's fraud. Payment deserved that's not coming to them. It's fraud. Still happens today. People still get caught in this all the time. This is what's happening. Not only are they committing fraud, but they're not committing fraud just to pay their bills. They're committing fraud so that they can live luxuriously, well beyond their means. Meaning they're not paying their bills with it. They're buying other things and some of the wealth is just sitting there. Imagine how awful this would be to be in this situation, right? You catching this a little bit? Like, can you imagine watching someone steal your money and then live luxuriously and store your money in their bank account? Do you know how hard that would be to watch? Some of you are perhaps caught in something like this. Where you're being taken advantage of and you're watching someone else make money off you and there's nothing you can do about it and they don't seem to care. What else are they doing as if that wasn't enough? They specifically oppress righteous people. That mean if you were someone who followed Jesus, then that becomes a target on your back. So it's because you follow Jesus, because you're a disciple of Jesus, because you're a Christian, they specifically do this to oppress you, make you mad, put you in the corner, make you frustrated, trying to whatever, perhaps make you become a murderous people revengeful. Why do I tell you all that stuff? We need to get in this text a little bit, don't we? And just feel for a moment viscerally what this would feel like to know why James would be so harsh. Now, this is an easy one for us. in terms of throwing rocks at corporate greed and corporate wealth, because some of you, your minds have already gone there. You're caught in the system. You're frustrated with corporate wealth. Anyone frustrated with the uh, cost of cell phones in Canada? Anyone? Does it drive anyone crazy that it's the most expensive place to own a cell phone? And that every time I watch a Toronto Blue Jays game and I hear Rogers Center, I feel like it's built on the backs of people who have to use cell phones. There's just something in me that's just frustrated with that. I'm like, that's not fair. Why can I go to India or anywhere in the world and pay like a tenth of the cost for this, but because I live in Canada and we have more cell phone towers than anywhere else, we have to pay more. It doesn't make sense to me. And there's part of me that rails against corporate cheese and greed. 
and, and tempts me to go, I don't care if they get ripped off by me. They've made so much money. It's greedy pigs. It's easy for us to sit here and say, yes, finally, a pastor who's had enough courage to get up there and rail against Rogers. I'm not here to do that. And I'll tell you why. Later. Got to stay, hang in there for a bit. But as James goes through, what does he say? So there's four things that we see in the text that the rich are doing. And there's four things then that James says happen to this wealth. Because it looks so good. The reality is, I'm actually a little bit envious of that. I'm covetous of that wealth. I think a little too more than I'd like to admit that I would like some of that wealth. That if I just had enough money to invest, I would do it differently but still make myself a pretty penny. I don't like admitting those kind of things. And so what does James say? Your riches have rotted. This is, this is, by the way, when he's kind of talking to corporate greed, but he's also kind of talking to the people. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. They don't last. That's what he's saying. Your riches have rotted. Some are like, okay, that's talking about agriculture. And you know, we all know that if all of your wealth is in agricultural industry, then technically it can rot. I don't think that's the case. I think it's much broader than that. And the way the Bible describes wealth all the time in the Bible is that it rots. Meaning it does not ever, ever last. It fades. It passes hands. It gets taken away. How many movies do we know of stories where someone became very wealthy and then very poor? The story of Job is about a very wealthy man who had everything taken away and then brought back again. What else does he say? Gold and silver corrode. I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's much better with metals uh, because he actually went to school for this. I went to people's school called Bible College. So I have to ask about things like, can gold and silver actually corrode? And some of you are like, oh, brother, why is Trevor talking about this? I don't know why I'm talking about this. But I do know this. Gold doesn't corrode, nor does silver. So why does James use that? Because he said, the most precious thing that you can imagine, that you think is untouchable, will fade away. That's what he's saying. Gold doesn't corrode. Yeah, but you can't take it with you. When you die, it fades away, it gets lost, it gets stolen, it gets buried. What else does he say? Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. It's like this wealth is like a little attorney that will show up on judgment day. And provide evidence for judgment. It's like, well, you know, will the defense, you know, call the next witness to the stand and there's gold and silver, like, we're here. We're here to prove that this doesn't last forever. That's kind of the imagery given there. A little mix up with the, the images. 
and will actually eat away at you, like eat your flesh like fire. Like it'll just kind of, you know, like in a forest, how a, a forest fire just kind of eats away at the forest. That's how he would describe it, even though it's technically burning. That's what he's kind of saying here. Moth-eaten garments, again. It's constantly destructing. It doesn't last. I actually have come to really appreciate high-quality clothes in the last couple of years. But I'm still amazed that there is a shelf life on every pair of pants and every shirt. I watch American Pickers at times. It's very interesting to me. It's like a 30-year-old jacket is like getting pretty close to like the end of its life. That's what he's saying. At some point, this stuff just disintegrates. Again, there's this double whammy here. Not only will wealth actually not live for forever, but it will act as evidence against us. You're like, wow, this is a great Christmas message, Trev. I know. Isn't it wonderful? Deck the halls. This is why we preach through books of the Bible and don't just choose subjects for particular days. But one of the commentators of this, John Calvin, basically said, but this wasn't a message just to corporate greed. That just in case someone who didn't believe in God opened it up and said, oh, this is about me. It wasn't written to those people. It was written to the Christians who were suffering in this. And John Calvin, I think, rightly said, if you don't know what is happening to wealth, then you envy it. And we need to know this about the material things around us as Christians. For those of us who follow Jesus Christ and have given our life to him, we need to know that one day everything that you see around you in terms of wealth will be gone. It will fade. Don't envy it. It's not worth envying. When I was growing up, there was a phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. I googled that. Had someone who's not a Christian blog about this and said, that's the stupidest advice ever. He says, what it should say is, he who dies with the most toys is still dead. Not someone who believed this, but there's a faultiness to this. But James is like, do not envy. As a follower of Jesus, you have treasure somewhere else. You have the opportunity to pour your treasure into something that actually lasts instead of something that fades. And every time we go into a mall, we can remember this. It's not wrong to buy gifts for your friends. It's not wrong to buy clothes for yourself. It's not wrong to do these things. But it changes the way you look at it when instead you go and you buy it saying, this too will pass. This will fade. I don't need more than I need because one day it will be all gone. It changes the way you even buy things. It also shows us that God sees what's happening and nothing gets past him. So for those who are caught in these systems, some of you are in mountains of debt. I don't know, actually. I'm just assuming on the basis of the statistics in our culture that some of you are in all kinds of debt that it's going to take you years before you're underneath that debt. And you're taken advantage of in some ways by the system because now that you're in debt, the prices go up and the penalties go up and the interest goes up 
And so you feel a little bit taken advantage of. And here's what James would say to you. Don't worry, God sees everything. Nothing gets past him. He makes right every wrong. That's an encouragement when we feel discouraged about our situation. God promises to avenge throughout the story of God. You see this over and over and over again. He avenges the cries of those who are helpless. Even in the book of James, he talks about widows and orphans, the people that are marginalized in society. He says, those are the people who have my heart. Specifically, because when no one else will fight for them, I will. I see those people. I love those people. But actually, sometimes he wants people who have money to then take care of them. That's what stewardship is. You know what a steward is? Steward is someone that's put in trust of someone else's money. Right? You bank maybe with a, a trust company. A trust company is a company that takes your money and invests it for you and makes money for you. If your trust company takes your money and says, woohoo, shopping spree, you say, you go to jail. And yet, we are called stewards of God's money. Same thing. And this is why the Bible is okay to say some of you are stealing from God. Because you think the money that's been given to you is your money. And God actually says, no it isn't. It's mine. I just entrust you with it so that you can do something with it. Like take care of the poor. Like take care of the marginalized. Like take care of your family. Like take care of those in need. And when we don't do that, essentially how the Bible describes it, not me, is that we're stealing from God. As one of the prophets of the Bible said, you're, you're stealing, you're, you're breaking into God's house and you're stealing from him when you don't take care of the poor. Now that's an amazing way of looking at things. Because I guarantee you that is not the message of Christmas. It's easy for us to pick out how someone else is doing this. But what's the real problem here? Does anyone know? What's at the root of what's going on with these wealthy landowners? Any idea? Greed. Greed. In my research this past week, I researched the story of the collapse of the, something in the mortgage deal in 2008 called The Big Short. Anyone know the story? Scared the out of me. I was like, oh, that's what went on? 2008, I was trying to stay alive planting a church. I had no idea. We rent. So a mortgage was nowhere near my mind during that time. Wasn't really carefully paying attention. I knew that there was a collapse of some sort, but I had no idea that it was of such monumental proportions, and I had no idea that it was driven completely by greed, according to sources. And what was interesting is, I, I, I watched this, I actually phoned up a friend of mine who knows much more about finances than I do, and I said, did I hear this right? I'm not very good with this, so I need to talk this out. I'm a, I, I talk as I think, which is why I'm a preacher. I said, did, did I hear this right? That this is basically boils down 
to banks weren't making enough off my $14.95 per month fee and they had to make more? Yes, was the answer. Stunned me. What stunned me more is at the end of this story, nothing changed. Banks are still doing it. The people who caught banks doing it were, in some ways, just as greedy as the banks were. That's what was so ironic about this whole story. They were caught in this. And there, was, there, was, there was no moral superiority to be given. Why? Because we all are greedy. That's why. We're greedy. Let's just say it out loud. We desire things that we don't have. We want more and more and more. I don't know if you struggle with this, but this is my biggest struggle in my life. I hate admitting this. It is actually embarrassing for me. But I know Jesus is asking me to to share this. Greed crouches at my door like a lion ready to overtake me at any time. You say, well, you don't have a lot of stuff. You don't even own a home. You know, look at, look at his minivan. You might not see that it looks greedy, but I say, yeah, but it crouches at my door and just waits to overtake me. Day in and day out, I want more. I want more. I too often believe the lie that if I just get this, then that will satisfy me. Any of you have this mental thing that goes on you like, hey, you know what? All I want is this and then I'll be good. And then you get it and you're like, all I want is this and then I'll be good. And then you get it and it's not enough. And you're like, oh, what if I had this? Then I'd be satisfied. Okay, this is the last time I buy this thing. Okay, this is the last time I sign up this way. And it never works, does it? You notice that? That it doesn't work? That that feeling that you're longing for when you think of more, whatever it may be, more sex, more of a house, more of a family, more of a marriage, it just does not satisfy you like you thought it would. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? That's greed. That's greed. Have you ever stopped trying to be greedy? Said, can't do it. I can't stop being greedy. I can't stop. And so as we talk about this, as close this out, I want to talk about the solution. Most of us are feeling bad right now, including myself. And that's why we have to finish off with the gospel. We have to finish off with the gospel. We are greedy... And again, I, I want to give all credit to my friend who gospeled me through this this week. Because I said, well, this is about greed. How do we deal with greed? And, and he gave me one of the best explanations I have ever heard in my life. And I just cannot take credit for it. He said, the problem isn't that we want more. The problem is that we take that desire for more and we place it in something that doesn't last. That can't give us what we're asking for. Instead of placing our trust in Jesus, who will never run out, never die, never get to the end of his grace. 
He said, people try so hard to stop being greedy. And if you're, if, again, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you're just wondering what, what this is about. Even, even guys who are not believers in Jesus Christ say you can't simply get rid of an old habit. If you've heard of Charles Duhigg, he's written a whole book on this called The Power of Habit. He says, and he backs it up with lots of research, he says you can't stop a bad habit. You have to replace it with a new one. That's how you quit an old habit. I believe that's a biblical principle. We can't stop being greedy. We can't stop longing for more. I think we are hardwired to want more. That's where that comes from. That's not a bad thing. The problem is, is when you believe the lie that the people in the text were believing, which is this will last for forever. This will bring me pleasure for a long time. This will satisfy me forever. And James says, no, it won't. No, it won't. The problem is not that we're greedy purely. The problem is that in our desire for more, we turn to the wrong stuff. We turn to things that go out of style. We turn to things that harm us. We turn to things that take advantage of people. We can never get enough money. We can never get comfortable enough because Jesus said you'll never be able to get comfortable until you're with me. And so here is how we respond to this gospel. We don't say, I don't want you to walk away going, I just got to try not to be greedy. I beg you, do not walk away trying not to be greedy. Or if you do, you'll be proving that it just won't work. Here's what we can do. Let's turn to someone who can satisfy us. Let's put our trust and our faith in Jesus. You see, James asks and says, you really trust God. Prove it with your wealth. You really believe that I am everything to you. Prove it with your wealth. You really think I'm Lord and Savior over your life. Am I Lord and Savior over your wallet? We went over this last week. Lord is a superior thing. When I talk about the Lordship of Jesus Christ, what I'm saying is he is your superior. And what James is asking is, is Jesus superior in your finances. But he's not saying it in a condemnation way. He's saying, why not? Can't you see? Can't you see it's not actually worth it? Can't you see that these things fade? Can't you see that greed gets such a deep hold of our hearts that we can't even see this in our own lives sometimes and we just point to other people? I can spot the greed a mile away in someone else's life. I'm an expert at spotting sin in someone else. It's me that's the hard one to see. So when we say, here's where we're at financially as a church, here's what we would like to do, ultimately this is not about us trying to get your money, we mean it. Because there's something here that Jesus says, by giving money away, you begin to release that greed hold on our hearts and instead trust in a better treasure. 
This is what this is about. My financial, I asked my financial advisor, I said, how much should I tithe? He said, you should notice. It should make a difference in the way you live. And then you'll know. Some of us have, got, I should give 10%. Actually, if you actually look at that in your Bible, you will see that 10% is kind of uh, the first tithe. It was 10% that was given for a party fund so that when Israel got together, they could celebrate. But then there was also a harvest fund that was to help out the priests. And then there was also free will offerings. And if you actually look at the percentages, it came to 33%. 33% of their income was dedicated to God's work. Why did he do that? Because he wanted 33%? No, because by doing this, they either trusted that God would provide for them or they would hoard. So we're not asking for 10%. We're saying, how much does Jesus want you to have? And how much does he want you to return? That's what we're saying. This is where we eat as a family. From this, this particular place. But as you well know, this isn't simply so we hoard it. That was an actual discussion as elders. If we keep our money and don't give it away, what are we doing? We're hoarding the resources that Jesus has given us to steward. We're behind budget. We're behind budget. Some of that's because we live in a tough economy. But if I can cut it to you straight, some of you are disobedient. That's why. So why do we give that money? We basically said, because we're trusting that God wants us to do this. We're trusting that he will make ends meet. We're trusting that whatever comes in will be whatever comes in. This was an act of faith by your elders and even your treasure was well in on this. Who loved this was fully supportive. It's a tithe. It's 10%. It's not very much. Why do we do that? Because we, it's not our money, that's why. Because Jesus said, here's what I think we want you to keep to maintain your church family and here's what we want you to give away so that you can see other people become families. That money's given to church planning. We, we don't know yet exactly where because we're constantly giving. I give away part of my time as a pastor to other church plants. We give away some of our resources. We're here to serve this city, not consume from this city. Where is this all coming from? Because it's coming from, it doesn't last anyways. It's not our money. And when we keep it, we get greedy as a church. And we think, ooh, wouldn't that $20,000 be nice to have in our building fund? I don't know about you, but maybe that's the question that went on in your mind. Ooh, $20,000. Do you know what we could have done with that, Trev? Yeah, I'm with you. I felt the same way. What did that do? Giving the money away. I'll tell you what it did. It released the greed in our hearts just a little bit more. Gave us an opportunity to trust in Jesus for this. A little bit more. We're not there yet. I think we can be more generous as a church than we are. And I'd like to be more generous as a church. We still got more money that we plan on giving away. I don't tell you that to brag, but to say this is something that has hit us very seriously. 
This is something that we believe is part of following Jesus. But this morning, you cannot simply try and get rid of your greed by giving money away. You can only do it when you actually first trust that Jesus will be your ultimate treasure. And so how do you hang in there? How do you deal with this? This is why I say verse 7. The very last thing, what does he say? His advice? Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, because Jesus is coming back. I love that. It's the last word on this. Be patient. It's going to feel tough. You're going to feel stretched. You're going to go without some things that you'd like to have. So be patient, brothers. Jesus is coming back. This is going to happen. You can do this because of what Jesus has done. But here, what he asks us to give up is, does not compare to what he offers to us, which is eternity with him. Do you know why it's called eternity? You know why heaven is described as eternal? Anyone have, think about this? Why is it called eternal? Because that's how long it's going to take for Jesus to show us how great he is. That's why. It's going to take forever, literally this time. Not figuratively, literally forever for him to show how good he is. And there's coming a day, friends, for those who trust and believe in Jesus Christ, when we will look back on our life on earth and we will say, why did we, were we satisfied with so little? Why did we not trust Jesus then? We could have had so much of what Jesus wanted to offer us. C.S. Lewis had a famous quote. You can't use it too often because it's so good and you can almost use it in every message. But here's the quote. Put it up for Wyatt to put up. He said this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. That's what James is saying. He's not saying don't get wealthy. He's saying don't settle for enormous wealth when you can have Jesus. Why would you do that? That's how I'm pleading with you. Not to give money to the church, not to give away all your money, not to stop buying things, but stop settling for something that will not satisfy you, no matter how hard you try. Instead, choose Jesus. And while it gets tough, be patient. He's coming back. I'll invite the band to come up. Hard work going into the Christmas season, right? But perfect, isn't it? It's an opportunity for us to respond. And we actually, what we try to do is we try to put, uh, go ahead, come behind me, Ashley. Put this down. What we try to do is put God's word 
at the front end of our message, our front end of our service, and then we put our response at the end. And so as we sing, this is a chance for us to respond. And one of the ways we respond is, yes, to give of our tithes of offerings. We call this, we put this at the response end. Why? Because we think this is actually an act of worship that can happen. But we don't just have giving gifts. We have something called communion. We call it the Lord's table. We call it the Lord's supper. You can call it Eucharist. These are all the right words. What is it? It's a symbolic meal that reminds you, guess what? Jesus did not tithe his grace to you. He did not give a portion of himself to us. He gave everything. He gave his entire life to us. That's what's symbolized here. The bread symbolizes God did not say, I'm going to give you a portion of my spirit. I'm going to give you part of who I am. He said, I'm going to give you everything that I have. My Holy Spirit to you. My Son whom I love. But I won't just give them to you to be an example. I will give them to you to pay a price so that I can buy you back so that you can receive the treasure that I have for you. That's symbolized in the cup. It's red because it's helpful for us to be reminded that God did not send his son just for free. It came at a cost. It's just that he paid that cost. The enormous cost for you to have that treasure was a check written by God called his son, Jesus Christ. And it's his blood that was shed and that check is signed in blood for you and for me. And so this is our opportunity to do a couple things, to respond by repenting. Repentance is turning from our way and saying, Jesus, I have been disobedient. I've said I've followed you with my wallet, but I haven't. I am sorry. Forgive me. Help me make a plan to move forward. This is also a moment to be reminded of, of the great grace we have been given. So it's an opportunity for thanks to say, Jesus, you paid it in full. There is no debt anymore for me. No amount of money that I could give could ever repay this. I just get to receive, freely receive the gift that you have given to me. And so my encouragement to, to us is to simply respond. Listen carefully to what Jesus, through his spirit, is telling you this morning, to the ways he's asking you to repent, but also the ways in which you can thank him for what he has given to you and me.